Well, good morning. Let me um, tell you about a conversation I had with a woman a couple of weeks ago. She's given me permission to mention this. But this uh, woman is going through a very painful time in her marriage. Her husband, who is not a believer, is trying to decide whether he wants to stay married to her. She told me in tears about her sense of failure, sense of guilt at not being the wife she really longs to be. How her own struggles and sinfulness have really hurt her husband. Uh, about her ache to really act toward him like she knows she should. Her, her deepest desire is for him to see God's love through her. For, to witness to him about God and his love. She feels like a total and complete failure at it. So in the conversation, I encouraged her to look to God, to know His love for her and His involvement in her situation. I encouraged her to to dedicate herself to expressing the, the genuine love she has for this man, to know God's delight in her while she expresses that desire. Well, while I was uh, telling her these things, uh, she asked me a question. It was a question that just cut straight to the heart of the matter, straight to her heart. It was a, a question so fundamental, uh, so big, it just kind of stopped me in my tracks. All the things I was going to say, suddenly I had to reconsider and, and think about. She just asked me, she said, does God really care about me? And about my marriage? She wasn't asking, does, does God care about people? God is love. Her theology is good enough. Of course God cares about people. She wasn't asking, does God care about marriages? Of course He does. He designed marriage. He hates divorce. He wants marriages to be strong and healthy. What she was asking was, does God care about me? Does God care about my marriage. Now, these aren't abstract theological questions. These are very personal, very uh, real, very emotional human questions. Does the God of the universe, the one who holds the future of nations in his hands, the one who calls great men and women of faith to himself, Abraham's and, and, and Moses, or, or even a, a Billy Graham, or a Jim Dobson, or even a David Roper, does this God care about a nobody? Somebody that nobody else really notices much. Somebody who's not a world shaker and a mover. Does God care about me? Now this is the bottom line. This is uh, the, the most basic question that we can ask. Now this cuts straight to the core of our hearts. And our gut level feeling about the answer to that question affects every part of our lives. It affects our ability to trust God. It affects our ability to be used by Him. There are no more basic, fundamental questions. Does God really care about you? Does God care about your marriage or lack of a marriage? Does God care about your children 
or your desire for children? Does God care about your health? Does God care about your job? Does God care about what's going on in your life, your financial difficulties, your uh, the circumstances of your life, the hard things you face. You know, when we're hurting, when we're really aware of our need, is when we most acutely feel these questions. Last week, uh, David Roper talked about uh, waiting for God. He talked about the big waits. The wait for a spouse when we're single and longing to be married. The wait uh, for resolution when there's so much tension and, and, and pain in our, in our marriage, the hurt is so deep and so confusing, we're overwhelmed. The, the weight, when we've lost a job and every prospect we can imagine hasn't come through. The weight, when our health continues to deteriorate, in spite of medical care, in spite of all of our prayers and the prayers of all of our friends. The weight, when our teenage son or daughter has decided they have no use for God in their lives. And we can see clearly how their attitudes and the decisions they are making are destroying their future. The weight when our lives seem pointless. They're going nowhere and there's no change on the horizon. You know, these are the times we know we need God. And we want to draw close to Him. But those Nagging suspicions, that deep, unspoken questions get in the way. Does God really care about me and about my situation, about my problems? I haven't seen a copy of Sports Illustrated for a while, but they used to have a regular feature called Faces in the Crowd. And that's what we feel like, Faces in the Crowd. And we feel like we're lined up along the entrance to the uh, Academy Awards. And all these famous and important people are going in. And, and we've got this fantasy that one of them will stop and see us and say, Hey, come on, you're important, come with me. You know, how are you doing? We know that's just a, a silly dream. These guys are important. They have more important things on their mind than to be bothered with a face in the crowd like, like me. The other day I was watching the... Um, President's State of the Union address. When it was over, as he was working his way through the room, people were crowded around him. He was shaking hands, waving at people over here and over there. But he didn't really know those people. That wasn't really personal. And sometimes it, it feels like God is a good politician. He's shaking hands and waving and working his way through the crowd. On to more important things. On to more important people. You know, why should God care about me? Nobody else really does. But that is the deepest longing of the human heart. What uh, Philip Yancey calls the ache for cosmic specialness. Um, Reynolds Price, the novelist, he says, The one sentence all of humankind craves to hear is the maker of all things, loves and wants me. And unless we hear that, how can we wait for Him? Unless we know that He really cares, how can we put our lives in His hands? How can we trust Him? We know we should. We want to. We even try. But those nagging suspicions, those deep, unspoken questions keep coming up 
and getting in the way. This morning I want to uh, take us to a psalm to uh, look at these questions, to talk about these questions. Turn with me to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. I want to start by uh, just reading the first half of the psalm, the first six verses. This is another one of those psalms that David wrote when he was in a cave, uh, trying to get away from Saul, waiting for God to deliver him. From Saul's relentless, incessant uh, attempts to try to track him down and kill him. So listen to the first uh, half, the first six verses. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lay down among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path. But they have fallen into it themselves. First thing I want to uh, take note of is that uh, David is still in the middle of his problems. Uh, The disaster hasn't passed yet. He's still surrounded by what he calls uh, ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Now these aren't men with orthodontal problems. David is using the imagery, the picture of ferocious lions with huge teeth to describe the feeling that he has among people. People aren't safe. They'll hurt you. They'll tear you apart with their mouths. They'll cut you with their tongues. They'll use you and then they'll speak against you. And even those that you trust the most, those that you lie down with, eventually... When the heat is on, when they're under pressure, sooner or later, they're going to hurt you too. They're going to cut you deeply with their tongues. And I've seen statistics about marriages going through some uh, severe trauma, like the death of a child. And quite honestly, the majority of them don't survive. As much as the husband and wife want to be there for each other, Ultimately, at least at times, they can't. The, the, the pain is too deep and too individual. They're dealing with their own stuff. And as much as they want to get beyond that and, and reach out, they don't. They, they can't. It's just too intense. And unless there's an enormous amount of forgiveness and acceptance, the wounds that they afflict on each other, the inability to really care for each other just drives them apart. But I want you to notice <coughs> excuse me, the difference in the feeling between the imagery of verse 4 with those ravenous beasts and the imagery in verse 1 where David says, I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. See, the feeling there is of a mother hen gathering a, a, a chick into the warm, secure protection 
of her wings. Comforting, focused, attention, loving, caring. I have a uh, print of a a painting by H.O. Tanner. It hangs on my living room wall. It's my favorite picture. In it, in in the background, there's a uh, a, a workman's coat hanging on a a nail on the wall of this rough uh, laborer's shack. The floor is rough-hewn wood. And in the middle of the floor, in a single chair, sits a very large, powerful black man dressed in, in work clothes. He's got heavy boots on. And he's looking down. All of his attention is focused on a small, young, shoeless boy of about seven or eight years old who is half sitting on his father's lap, half standing between his knees. And this boy is holding an old tattered banjo, concentrating on the um, movement of his fingers on the strings. One of his father's huge, rough hands is holding the neck of the banjo, making the cord for his son. And the little boy is just surrounded by the body of his father, just enveloped in the strength and the security and the attention and the focus. You know, as I look at that picture, I get the same kind of feeling of security, of concern, of care, of attention that I get from David's imagery of being gathered under a mother bird's wings. And this imagery of of, of hiding under the shadow of God's wings is one of David's favorite images. He uses it in seven or eight different psalms. Let me read a couple of uh, them to you, just pieces of them. Um, Don't try to interpret these. Just see if you can feel what David's trying to help us feel. Let me read a few verses first from Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you. He will cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. In Psalm 17, Show the wonder of your great love, you who save by your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. See, David knows that God loves him. He is the apple of God's eye. That's why he says there in our psalm, Psalm 57, You send from heaven and save me. You send your love and your faithfulness. You see, David knows that God not only loves people, God loves David. And that security and that strength, David worships God. You know, it's interesting, the, the words that he uses here to talk about love and faithfulness, they're very powerful words. They are covenant words, marriage words. The word uh, for love is chesed. It means the kind of commitment a husband gives to his beloved bride. There, there's deep emotion in that word, but it's the emphasis is on the commitment I think it's interesting to look at the idioms in the book of Ruth. Ruth was David's great-grandmother. And there's a book about her in the Bible. And in this book, she is a young widow. 
she goes to the man that she loves, Boaz, to ask him to marry her. Listen to how she says it. She says to Boaz, Spread the wings of your robe over me. Same word for wings that David was using. See, that was an idiom for marriage, to spread the wings of his robe. It was a picture of coming under the protection and the care and the attention and focus and concern. A little earlier in the book, uh, Boaz says to Ruth, May you be richly blessed by the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And I think this is probably where David got... uh, this imagery. This is why he fell in love with it. His, his, uh, it was his great-grandmother's imagery, her words. But see, what the imagery is, what the, what the idiom stands for, coming under someone's wings, is the commitments of marriage. The, the, the commitment to protect and to provide for and to care for and, and to focus one's attention and energy. Those kind of commitments that, that make up marriage. And that marriage itself is a picture of the God's commitment. God's desire to provide for and focus and, and His love, His care, His concern. David uh, seems to be aware that God has this kind of commitment to him. The word he uses there for faithfulness. It's the word emmet, kind of like our city not too far from here. Emmet means to uh, be faithful, to be reliable, keep one's words and one's commitments. Again, these are deeply emotional words, but the emphasis is on commitment. It's more reliable than emotion. These are lifelong Commitments, And David realizes, David knows that God has that kind of commitment to him. In a sense, it's as if God was married to David. David was married to God. It's that personal, that focused, that individual. You see, I, I love people. Generally, I get along with them pretty well. Often I care about them. But I'm married to Becky. Not just a person. To Becky, it's far more personal, far more individual. I love her in a way I don't love anybody else. I'm committed to her beyond what I am committed to just the people out here. See, David realizes we can have a relationship with God that is that focused, that personal, that individual. We can have a level of commitment to God and from God that it's unlike any other relationship. It's more reliable than any other relationship. God doesn't have this kind of relationship with everybody. Only with individuals like you or me who have come to God and have asked Him to spread the wings of His garment over us. Have come under the shelter of His wings. This isn't automatic any more than a a, a close personal relationship with any specific individual is automatic. But it is available if you want it. We're going to come back to this in just a little bit. Before we get too far away from uh, verse 2, I wanted to uh, take note of something in that verse 2. David says that 
He cries out to God who fulfills his purpose for me. We've been talking a lot about the question, does God really care about me? There's a second question here. Do I have a purpose? Larry Crabb talks about the two fundamental issues for psychological health. And he, at least at one point, described them as security and significance. Security focuses on the question, am I really loved? Does anybody really care? But the uh, but significance looks at, at questions, do I have a purpose? Is there meaning in my life? Am I just a random event in the universe? Or does God really have a purpose for me? You see, David was convinced that God had a purpose for him. Well, that's easy. Of course he did. I mean, that's David. He was going to be king. That's a great purpose. What are you and I ever going to be king of? Well, I would argue that even though that is a purpose for David, that wasn't the purpose, not the main one. There's something else that goes under all the rest, through all the rest, all of his life, not just when he was king, but all of his life, a purpose that we share with him. Let me ask you, how uh, has your life been affected by David being king 3,000 years ago in Palestine for about 40 years, an effective king for about 20? How has that affected your life? It hasn't affected mine at all. Now, that was a long time ago in another part of the world. That doesn't affect me in the least, nor the, you nor the people around you. But David has had a profound impact on my life. Not as king, but as someone who worships God and has shown me how to worship God. You see, simply by praising God in the good times as well as in the difficult times, before he was king, when he was going to become a king, when he was a shepherd boy, as king, all those times, simply by praising God in the midst of the details of his life, David has had a profound impact on countless millions of people all over the world throughout history. Now, his attention may have been focused on God providing food and shelter, God getting him out of a jam, God uh, delivering him from Saul's constant pursuit, God bringing him to the throne, God finding him a wife, all of these kind of details of life. That may have been where his attention was, but during it all and under it all, God's greater purpose was for him to worship, to praise him, and as a result of that, to have an impact on the lives of other people. See, the same thing is true of you and me. We may be focused on all the details, on all of our many needs, and it's important that we acknowledge those needs and we bring them to God. He wants to meet them. But through it all and during it all, our greater purpose is in those good times as well as the bad times, the tough times, the confusing times, is to praise Him to worship Him, and to have an impact on our world, on the people around us, and on the future of this world as a result 
of that. This is what we were created for. This is our purpose. This is what we will find ultimate satisfaction in doing. And this is how we will leave our mark. Now, it's so easy to get absorbed in the details of life and and lose sight of the big picture. Our eyes, our vision gets filled with all of the things going on, all of the events, all of the circumstances. And we lose sight of that big picture. Haddon Robinson uses a poem by an anonymous poet that speaks of this. The poem goes, Oh, where is the sea, the fishes cried, as they swam the Atlantic Ocean through? We've heard of the sea and the ocean tide, and we long to, to gaze on its waters blue. See, we keep looking all around for our purpose. We look in business, we look in family relationships, we look in sports and arts and everywhere else. Well, it's been around us, all around us, all the time. The opportunity has been there all along. We live in a uh, society that is plagued by senseless and random violence. A guy walks down the aisle of a train shooting passengers as he goes. Kids open up in a party with automatic weapons just mowing people down. Individual stalkers compete for the record of, of random victims killed without any sense, without any purpose, no reason whatsoever. We say, why? Well, the easy answer is sin, the sin that is rotting our society. But realize an awful lot of that comes out of this hunger, this desire to be significant, to make a mark, to have the 15 minutes of fame that Andy Warhol promised each of us. You see, we're faces in the crowd, and that is maddening for some. But it needn't be, because we have a great purpose. And that is that in the midst of our lives, and in in the midst of, of the confusion at times, and the hurt at times, in the midst of the good times as well as the bad, the setbacks as well as the advances, the joys and the heartaches, to praise God, to worship Him, and to have a profound impact on people, to leave a mark simply as a result of that. Let's go back to uh, Psalm 57, see how this works out. There's a very definite progression, a clear progression here. It starts with David knowing God's love and God's faithfulness. And in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of the, the danger, remember the, dis- the disaster hasn't passed, the, the uh, ravenous beasts are still all around him. Right in the middle of that, look at verse 5. It's right between verse 4 and verse 6. Verse 4 is all about those ravenous beasts. Verse 6 is all about the traps that are set on every side. Right in the middle, David erupts into praise. He says, Be exalted, O God, among the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. See, David's in a cave right now. He's got a bunch of guys around him, but even those guys aren't safe. And in the quiet of his own heart, in the loneliness of his problems, because problems are very lonely, David worships God. 
And the rest of this psalm is the results of that. Verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. See, David's not waiting for something outside. He's not waiting for the sun to come up and bring light to his life. The light's already shining in his heart. He'll wake the dawn. His heart is steadfast. That word steadfast means stable, secure, well-prepared, nailed down. There's still problems all around him. But he's not blown away by it. He's not overwhelmed. He's okay. Things are still happening. New dangers are coming. He doesn't know how God's going to get him out of this, how God's going to provide for that. But he's okay. His heart is stable. His heart is steadfast. Again, he knows God's love and faithfulness. And that enables him to praise God in the midst of those difficulties. And the result of that is that his heart is secure, strong, stable. And from that position of security and strength, he moves on to ministry. David moves from worship to witness, to affecting the lives of others. In fact, the whole world. Look at verse 9. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the people. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Notice the content of his praise that he offers to the people. is first of all that love and that faithfulness that David knows personally individually. And the culmination of that praise, the the thing that he expresses, the way he praises God to others is the exact same way he praised God in the quiet of his heart in that cave. Be exalted, O God, among the heavens. Let thy glory be over all the earth. See, this is just a simple picture of what ministry is all about. How we impact the life lives of others. One of the responsibilities as well as privileges that we have as believers is to share God with others, to witness concerning Him. But what is that? What does that look like? How do we do that? Well, in its most basic form, witnessing is just sharing how neat God is, how He has been faithful, how He loves you. That's how you witness at work or in your family, in your neighborhood. You just share how neat God is and how faithful and loving He's been to you. It doesn't necessarily involve an elaborate presentation where you answer every question they can imagine. It doesn't even necessarily involve a formal prayer at the end. There's nothing wrong with those things. And it's valuable, I think, to learn more about how to communicate the gospel. But at its basic level... Witnessing is just sharing your excitement about the fact that the God of the universe loves, cares about you personally, individually. As people see that, people with all kinds of problems, then they begin to believe that God could actually love them. As well. Well, if it's so uh, 
simple and so easy, how come it doesn't work out so easily in our lives? How come we don't feel the freedom to share how neat God is? How come we don't feel like we have anything to say? First Peter, Peter tells us to be prepared to give an explanation of the hope that lies within you. Well, how come nobody's asking us about that hope? We don't get much opportunity to explain it. Maybe it's because we're not that hopeful. Our hearts aren't full of hope. Well, why not? Well, maybe it's because our hearts aren't steadfast. Well, why aren't they steadfast? Well, maybe it's because during those rough times, we are not praising God in the quiet of our home, in the quiet of our hearts. We can't be expected to praise God to others when we're not praising Him directly, personally, in the privacy of our hearts, in the privacy of our homes. But why aren't we doing that? Why do we find it so difficult to worship Him when we're in confusing, painful situations? Well, maybe it's because we're not really sure that He loves and cares for us personally and individually. Again, we're not talking the fact that God loves people. Of course He does. Theology is good. But it's those doubts. Does he love, does he care about me, my situation, my problems? You see, it all comes back to that most fundamental, that most basic question. The beginning of the whole progression is knowing God cares about us. God cares about me. You know, we've been talking about David, King David. Of course God cares about David He's not a nobody. He's not a face in the crowd like me. He's King David. What about me? Well, the answer to that question lies in the ultimate expression of God sending from heaven to save. The word save, uh, in this uh, particular instance, it's, it's Yoshani. Well, it's the same root, the same word, in its noun form, in its name form, Yeshua. The answer to that question is Yeshua. That's the Hebrew word for Jesus. The answer to that question that was sent from heaven to save is Jesus. Now let me uh, point out a couple of things about this. First of all, let me ask you some more questions. What was the name of the woman that Jesus healed of the issue of blood? Jesus was working his way through a crowd. People were crowding around, wanting to see him, wanting his attention, trying to, to, to get him to uh, talk to them about something or deal with some need. And this woman, facing the crowd, a nobody, sneaks up behind him, touches his robe. Jesus was actually, at that point, talking to a, a synagogue official, a leader, a very important person. And he stops immediately. And he turns around and he finds this woman out. He focuses his attention on her. And he ministers to her. He meets her need. He loves her. See, she was hoping to sneak in and sneak out. And Jesus would never notice. She was so shy. She was so afraid. You know, why would Jesus want to talk to me? He wouldn't be bothered with somebody, a nobody like me. But what she discovers, like so many other nobodies have discovered is that you can't so easily 
escape Jesus' gaze. You matter too much to him for that. And what was the name of the uh, old blind man that Jesus healed in the synagogue? What was the name of the woman at the well that Jesus spent so much time with and explained so much of the gospel and so much about himself to? And what was the name of the man who had the AIDS of his day, leprosy, who no one would go near? Jesus embraced. What was the name of the Canaanite woman whose son was suffering? You see, all of these are nobodies. Faces in the crowd, but not to Jesus. Jesus was sent from heaven to make it absolutely clear that we aren't just faces in the crowd. That God loves, God cares for individuals. Jesus went out of his way to show that that God cares about nobodies, irrelevant people like you and me. That's what he what he showed in his actions and his behavior and that was the content of his teaching. He said that uh, God is like a shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to find that one individual sheep. And he's like the woman who searches for that one individual coin. He notices when a single sparrow falls to the ground. How much more important to him are you than a sparrow? God fills his banquet halls with bag ladies, the homeless. That's what Jesus came to tell us, that that's the kind of God he is. Someone who cares about individuals, people, individually and personally. Let me tell you one more uh, remarkable fact. All through the Old Testament, the uh, great men and women of faith struggled, wondered, does God really care about me? Abraham struggled with it. Jacob sure struggled with it. Moses struggled with it. Job obviously struggled with it. Even David, when you read some of the other Psalms, he struggled with it. When life got difficult, when life got confusing and painful, they would ask, now does God really care? Does God really care about me and my my situation? But when you come to the writers of the New Testament, they never ask that question. And it's not like their lives were easy. Uh, Peter was imprisoned and beaten on many occasions. Paul was shipwrecked and stoned and left for dead and, and beaten and persecuted. John was, was exiled and imprisoned. And their lives were tough. At times they felt out of control. They didn't know what was happening to them. They didn't know what was going to happen next. They didn't know how God was going to provide for them. But they never doubt God's love for them. Why not? Well, because they had seen Jesus. They'd walked with him. They'd seen the way he loved people, the way he focused his attention, the way he cared about individuals, nobody's faces in the crowd. And they had looked into his eyes and seen his love for them. Their questions were answered. They'd seen Jesus hang on the cross for them. They had his face, his expressions, his eyes indelibly etched on their memories. 
And they knew to the core of their being that God loved them individually and personally. See, the uh, ultimate answer to our questions is Jesus Christ. Look at Him. Look at Him in the Gospels. Look what He does. Listen to what He says. Then look into His eyes yourself. He loves you. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Jesus' nail scars have your name on them. One time when Jesus was teaching in the temple, he said with tears in his eyes, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see, he longs to gather you under his wings, to spread the wings of his cloak over you. Be willing. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, just uh, admit again how often I uh, struggle with whether you really care about me. I know you care about people. I know that you are a faithful, loving God. But it's so hard to really believe you care about me and my marriage, my family, my job, my needs. Lord, I want to uh, look into your eyes to see Jesus, to know your love. I ask for each person here that you would show yourself, that we would trust you, that we would hear in our hearts your love, your commitment to us. Lord, uh, we want to have that, that foundation in our lives the ability to worship you in the hard times because we know you love us. We want to be able to have our hearts stable and strong to be able to share that with the people around us. God, we know that you've got to start that whole process. Or open our eyes to see, to believe that you love us each individually, personally, that we can have that kind of relationship with you. Bear fruit in our lives as a result of that conviction. I pray in your name. Amen.